Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm happy to say we have Adam Hochschild on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, To End All Wars, A Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914 to 1918. One of the things that this book points out is that there were people before World War I and during World War I who understood that it was going to be a horrible calamity. But the interesting thing is, is that they were in the very small minority. Almost everybody who commented on the coming war believed that it would be short and that it would be of a character similar to previous wars. They did not see it coming. And more than that, they wanted it to come. And that really is one of the great contributions of this book, because it points out the ways in which these people thought about war in a way that is profoundly foreign to us. And I think on this Memorial Day, it is Memorial Day here in the United States, it is appropriate that we remember this. That the way that we think about warfare today, what its purpose is, what is to be gained from it, and what, it, and what is to be lost from it, are really, really very different than the ways our ancestors thought about it, even quite, even quite recently. This is a terrific book by a terrific writer. I hope that you go out and pick it up. I really enjoyed talking to Adam today about it. And without further ado, here's the interview. Hi, Adam. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Very good. I'm glad to hear that. Today we're talking to Adam Hochschild about his new book, To End All Wars, A Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914 to 1918. So, Adam, why don't you begin the interview by telling us just a little bit about yourself. Well, um, I started off studying history in college. Uh, I never went to graduate school. Yeah, I was going to say you're in very good company not going to graduate school. <laughs> <laughs> it has both advantages and disadvantages. Uh, but uh, I think by working in, in journalism for 15 or 20 years, uh, that was its own graduate school in a way. Uh, I worked both as a daily newspaper reporter and as a magazine writer and editor. And being a magazine editor for 10 years was really very good training because it makes you uh, look for what makes an article readable, what makes it lively, what makes it relevant, uh, what makes it something worth a thousand words or worth 5,000 words. And when you're making those judgments all day long, I think then when you return to your own writing, as I finally did, it leaves you in a position to make those kinds of judgments much more effectively uh, about your own writing. Also, doing journalistic work gave me a, a tremendous appetite for, for seeing the world, or perhaps it's because I had that appetite that, that I went into journalism. So when I write about history, I like to go to the places where history took place and see it for myself. And in some of the books that I've done, I've been able to combine history and reportage. I did a book, for instance, uh, some years back about how Russians were coming to terms with Stalinism and I traveled all over Russia, went to places where people had excavated mass graves, mm -hmm. saw some of the old gulag camps, talked to uh, former prisoners in them, talked to former secret policemen, both uh, those who were repentant and not repentant, and tried to combine that with my reading about the Stalin era and history. And I love doing that kind of combination mm -hmm. when I can. The last three books I've done have been more purely historical in that they're about things that are 100 to 250 years ago. 
And so I have not been able to go out and interview people who took part in them, although I have done my best to go to the places where that history took place. So let me ask you a preliminary question. And, and you know, you, you, um, you're not a professional historian. You're, you're a journalist, and yet you write these terrific history books. What are some of the challenges of doing that? I, you know, again, I always marvel at people that can combine these two things, this kind of journalistic writing style that's very engaging and also a kind of deep understanding of history. Because my books are, to be honest with you, turgid. <laughs> Well, <laughs> uh, as I say, I think there are advantages and disadvantages to not having studied history. The, the disadvantage is that uh, there's an awful lot of history that I don't know. Uh, I would not be capable of teaching a high school or even elementary school course in American or European history or world history or something without doing a lot of reading first. Mm -hmm. But when I do pick a subject – I do take a few years to try to read everything I can find about that subject. Um, I mean, everything I can find when you get to a subject like the First World War, for example, that's impossible because there are, are well over 100,000 books listed sure. in the interlibrary catalog on that subject. But um, I do like to zero in as deep as I can once I find the subject that I want to write about. And I do find myself actually – dealing quite a bit and in a very uh, friendly way with professional historians of that of that subject matter. Mm -hmm. uh, I always am worried that people whose lifelong work has been studying whatever I'm writing about uh, are going to be upset and distressed that there's an inter interloper with no professional training suddenly coming into their territory, but not at all. I'll, I'll tell you about a very interesting and moving experience I had on the last book, which was a history, Bury the Chains, which was a history of the anti-slavery movement in the British Empire. Mm -hmm. To me, a very dramatic and inspiring story. Well, when I'd finished my manuscript, I did what I always try to do with a book, which is to seek out people who really know the subject and ask them, would you do me the favor of reading my manuscript, help me find where I've made mistakes, and so on. Uh, I contacted um, six prominent historians of slavery whose work I'd come really to respect in the course of writing this book. Five of them were in the academic world. One was an independent scholar. Um, and I asked all six, would you, would you do me the favor of reading this manuscript? Five of them did so. Mm -hmm made enormously helpful suggestions, couldn't have been kinder to me. One, you know, gave a jacket comment without my asking him for it. Uh, and two of these folks also made suggestions of a literary nature because mm -hmm. uh, they saw that I was trying to do something that wasn't quite what they tried to do because they write in a very – tend to write in a, in a pretty – academic, scholarly way, heavy on the footnotes, heavy on references to other historians. They saw I was trying to do something different, which was to take their subject to a mass audience. Several of them had suggestions uh, um, about how to do that better. You know, well, you introduce such and such a character uh, later on. Don't you think you should introduce him a little bit earlier because he plays an important part in the story? Or why don't you switch the order of these two chapters because it would help the suspense build better? So I think there is a hunger among many historians to write in a more narrative way that would reach a larger number of people. And indeed, there are some very fine historians in the academic world who do that and do it wonderfully. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are. And we talk to them every week. Good. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope people go buy their books because, you know, um, they really are very uh, 
They really yeah. are very good, and these people are very talented. I mean, they do write in a different style, but you know, nonetheless, it's often extraordinarily engaging. And I know when you get them talking that they can tell a ripping story. And, yeah. Because like we do this every week, and they really can do it. So anyway, yeah, that's very very interesting. Why why did you write to end all wars? Well, I'd always been fascinated with the First World War. Uh, you know, it might have begun when I was seven or eight years old. We had a book of photographs of the war sitting around the house, and I used to page through it and see, you know, these photographs of absolute devastation. Often there was a little scrap of poetry or something on the page, you know, some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. Mm-hmm. Also, I had an uncle uncle by marriage who fought uh, in the war. Uh, I talk about him actually in an earlier book of mine, Half the Way Home, Captain Boris Sergevsky of the Imperial Russian Air Force, mm-hmm. uh, fighter pilot, ace, uh, won the highest medal of Imperial Russia, the cross of the Order of St. George, which gave the bearer uh, the right to a private audience with the Tsar at any time of day or night, a mm-hmm. privilege which was not of much use after 1917. No. But uh, he used to talk about the war some. He had veterans, friends who sometimes were at our house and talked about it. So it was always sort of a presence in my life. My father had been of military age uh, in 1917 when the United States entered the war, tried desperately hard to get into the army, was bitterly disappointed that he was turned down because of bad eyesight, finally did manage to pull strings and get in in World War II. Uh, he used to talk about that. My mother remembered the First World War because, like so many people, she shared the jubilation when the United States finally went in in 1917. But then very soon after that, two uh, beloved cousins of hers were killed in the war, and she never forgot the shock of that. Then the older I got, the more I began to read history and began to be fascinated by the senselessness of this war. Here was a war that killed more than 9 million soldiers, an estimated 12 to 13 million civilians. No one will ever know that uh, number with any precision. But it was not really fought about anything. Uh, And up until a few weeks before the fighting broke out, the major nations of Europe were actually getting along with each other quite well. Mm -hmm. None of them publicly claimed a piece of anybody else's territory. Uh, the royal families went on yachting vacations together. There was a huge amount of uh, business and investment joint ventures across borders and so forth. And then, boom, the whole continent is in flames. So that senselessness of the war I find haunting. And that makes me admire all the more the people who saw this war as madness when it was going on and who refused to fight. And it was searching for a way to tell their story um, that uh, sort of led me to this book. I wanted to retell the story of the war of 1914-1918, not as a battle between two sides, but as a struggle between people who felt it was a noble and necessary crusade and people who felt it was absolute madness and who did not want to take part in it. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting way and compelling way to structure the story rhetorically. And I should tell people that it, um, just as Adam has said, interwoven into the narrative of World War I, and Adam is very clear this is not a history of World War I or anything like that, interwoven into the, the, the narrative are the, the lives of some really interesting people, some of whom uh, 
were, uh, I guess what we'd call sort of tip, typical late Victorian militarists, and, and, and some of whom were uh, conscientious objectors of various stripes. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about them. But um, how did you, there, there, you know, actually I was counting, and there are about 10 or 12 of these people in the book. How, how did you find them? Well, I'm a believer that if you want to get people to pay attention to a piece of history, the best way to do it, or certainly the way that has worked for me for several books now, is to try to tell a story through a network of characters who are connected to each other. You know, we live our lives in a network of characters, um, friends, family, enemies, rivals, lovers. You know, we are, we are connected to a web of people. When we go to a, a film or when we read a novel, we expect also to be taken into a network of people who are connected with each other. Well, I like to tell history the same way, to find that network. Now, constructing the network, picking which people through whose stories I was going to talk about this conflict over the war, was not an easy job. Uh, even though there were war resistors in all of the principal countries, uh, more than 500 people went to jail in the United States, for example, including some really notable ones. Uh, Eugene V. Debs got nearly a million votes for president on the socialist ticket in 1920 when he was still in prison for his role in speaking out against World War I. Even though there were war resistors in all of the uh, countries, I decided to focus on England because that's where the – number of people who were outspokenly against the war was largest. Uh, more than 20,000 men of military age refused to go into the British Army. And uh, many of them, as a matter of principle, refused the alternative service offered for conscientious objectors, you know, driving an ambulance at the front or working in a war industry. Uh, more than 6,000 went to prison as a result. Largest number of people uh, imprisoned up to that point in time in a Western democracy for political reasons. And happily for me, they kept diaries, they wrote letters, they published clandestine prison newspapers on toilet paper, and they had interesting relationships with family members who felt very differently about the war. And I fairly early on realized that the best way to tell this story was in terms of divided families. And I focused on three of them, and I'll tell you about them. And then I brought in other characters uh, who had some connection in one way or another with one of these divided families. Uh, the most spectacularly divided family was that of uh, Field Marshal Sir John French, who was commander-in-chief of the British forces on the Western Front for the first year and a half of the war. And uh, to use your phrase, very much a late Victorian militarist. Um, and, uh, you know, a general who had uh, grown up in the cavalry and the army and so forth. He had a sister, Charlotte Despard, who was an ardent pacifist, traveled up and down England speaking against the war, wrote the best-selling anti-war pamphlet, visited the families of conscientious objectors to try to keep their spirits up, uh, had taken part in all of the principal radical movements before the war, went to jail four times in the battle for women's suffrage, for example. And uh, interestingly, this brother and sister were quite fond of each other, continued to see each other throughout the war. They stopped speaking only when in 1918 uh, – uh, the British government sent him to, France, to uh, sent him to Ireland to be viceroy of Ireland in charge of suppressing the nationalist rebellion against British rule. She went to Ireland to work for the IRA. They stopped speaking at that point. Mm 
But what a fascinating relationship to explore. A uh, couple of other divided families. One of them was the well-known Pankhurst family. Uh, Emmeline Pankhurst and two of her daughters, Christabel and Sylvia, were the leaders of the most militant faction of the movement for votes for women in England before the war. Uh, all of them had been to prison many times. Uh, on the eve of the war, Emmeline Pankhurst, the mother, was arrested for literally throwing a rock through the window of 10 Downing Street, the prime minister's residence. Uh, but the moment the war began, she ceased all political activity, put herself at the service of the British government, which uh, was happy to have her work for them. They sent her on speaking tours all over the British Isles. They sent her to the United States to try to get the U.S. to enter the war on Britain's side. They sent her to Russia in 1917 to try to whip up war fervor among Russian women. Meanwhile, her daughter Sylvia became one of Britain's most outspoken opponents of the war, published the most widely read anti-war periodical, uh, <clears throat> did all she could to aid conscientious objectors and war resistors, published in her magazine uh, you know, statements from pacifists in Germany who felt the same way as she did about the war. And that mother and daughter pretty much stopped speaking to each other. And then a third family I focused on was well-known British family, the Hobhouses. Uh, Emily Hobhouse, a longtime crusader for human rights, uh, in 1916 did something quite remarkable. She uh, traveled without proper visas or permission from anybody through France, through neutral Switzerland, to Germany, went to see the German foreign minister whom she'd known before the war, talked about possible peace terms with him, uh, then returned to, to England, went to see people in the British government, told them things that she thought Germany might agree to. They brushed her off and everybody sort of laughed, laughed her off as this hopeless one-woman lone wolf diplomacy mission. Uh, but nonetheless, I think she deserves a place in the history books because in this war that killed more than 20 million people and remade the world for the worse in every conceivable way. She was the sole person, official or non-official, who traveled from one side to the other and back again in search of peace. She had uh, great influence on a cousin of hers, Stephen Hobhouse, who ended up uh, not only going to prison as a conscientious objector, but uh, being in solitary confinement in prison for leading a protest against prison rules. One of them was the notorious rule of silence where uh, people in British prisons were not allowed to talk to anybody. And he said, I feel like talking to my fellow human beings whenever I wish. They threw him in solitary. Uh, his family was uh, terribly distressed at this, where they were worried about his health, which was quite fragile. And in an effort which he didn't know about to try to uh, uh, help him and get his imprisonment conditions eased, they enlisted the aid of a close family friend who, as it happened, had acted as godfather at Stephen's birth, who was minister of war. Mm -hmm. So I'm fascinated by times and places like this where people who feel very differently about a central moral and political challenge of the age, nonetheless are related to each other by ties of family and, and friendship. Mm -hmm. So those were some of the characters at the center of the book. And then there are a lot of other people who in one way or another come in by virtue of a, of a connection to, to these people. And some of whom I think that our listeners have heard of, you know, obviously 
Rudyard Kipling, but there are other people. Douglas Haig uh, makes more than a small appearance and is a very interesting character. Um, and uh, I was thinking of uh, Alfred Milner is there. There, there are other folks as, as well. Um, John Galsworthy makes an appearance. Uh, sure. Who will be known to people, obviously. We interviewed someone who'd written a, a book about Galsworthy here on the show. So why don't we begin by talking about a couple of these people. I, I guess the, the, the most striking contrast, as, as you say, is really uh, Sir John French and uh, his sister, Charlotte Despard. One of the things I really liked about the book that I think helped me understand what happened in the First World War, and, and I guess I should say by what happened is it really is hard to understand. I, I, you know, it, it just is, it's difficult to wrap your mind around what they did. Uh, so you, you do a really, a really nice job introducing some of the reasons for what they did through the character of John French, and most particularly his generation, the things that they had experienced, and how they brought that experience and what they thought was knowledge to 1914. So could you talk a little bit about John French and his generation? Yeah, I think he's a very typical figure in many ways. Uh, he entered the British Army uh, uh, in the early 1870s. And at that time, and for some years afterwards, the most prestigious branch of the army was the cavalry. The cavalry had always been the elite force, which for thousands of years really had been the decisive factor in, in, in winning wars. The fastest way to get promoted to command an army was to rise up through the cavalry. It was also very much a preserve of the upper class because there were various expenses involved in being a British cavalry officer that were far in excess of army pay. Uh, you know, you needed a, a, a horse, grooms to take care of the horse. You needed a polo pony or two for playing polo. Uh, you needed the proper club memberships and so forth. This was expensive, and this ensured that uh, cavalry officers, like all officers, but especially those in the cavalry, were people from the upper classes. Uh, French took part in a couple of colonial wars uh, in the Sudan, for example, in the 1880s, also took part in suppressing a tenant rebellion and tenant farmer rebellion in Ireland. And then he was a cavalry general in the Boer War in South Africa. And curiously, he and Douglas Haig, who was then his deputy and then some 15 years later his successor as commander-in-chief on the Western Front, were the... Uh, commander and assistant commander of what was really the last great successful cavalry charge in British history, which was in early 1900 for the relief of Kimberley, breaking the siege of Kimberley in the Boer War. Glorious cavalry charge, 5,000 men on horseback charging through a gap in the Boer lines. Why were they able to charge through the gap? Because the Boers at that point didn't have machine guns and they had forgotten to string barbed wire, which they did have, across this gap. And those, of course, turned out to be the really two most decisive weapons uh, of the First World War. Mm -hmm. But because this cavalry charge had succeeded so gloriously, um, the generals didn't plan for barbed wire and machine guns. Or when they went to war in 1914, they almost assumed that they would have all the most modern weaponry, but the people they were fighting would not, mm -hmm. or it would not be shooting at them. I mean, how else can you explain the fact that millions of French soldiers, French infantrymen, uh, the entire French infantry force went to war in 1914 wearing bright red caps, bright blue tunics, bright red pantaloons, um, 
you know, make themselves perfect targets for the Germans. Uh, and Austro-Hungarian cavalry also dressed in these bright red and blue uniforms, which they didn't abandon until 1916. So there was something about this war that has about a, you know, an aura of all kinds of illusions. One of the illusions almost is that it was better to be better dressed like those French infantry, infantrymen than to be less of a target. Or the illusion that cavalry could do anything in the age of barbed wire and the machine gun. Mm -hmm. Or the illusion that it was going to be a quick and easy victory. You know, Kaiser Wilhelm II told his troops when they invaded France and Belgium, you will be home before the leaves fall from the trees. And the German plan for subduing France called for Paris to surrender in 42 days. Mm -hmm. So all of these illusions are another thing that draws me to the war and makes it so fascinating for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I should say in the case of Kaiser Wilhelm and Moltke and, and these other folks in the general staff is that, that they had experienced this in uh, 1871. So they, 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 their expectations were built on that. So. Right. They had, yeah. they had encountered, they had uh, subdued France very quickly in the Franco-Prussian War. Mm -hmm. And they, like Britain and France, their military experience in the preceding several decades were almost entirely in small-scale colonial wars mm -hmm. in Africa and Asia where there were suppressing, uh, you, know, rebellion, you know, rebellions in the colonies or conquering new territories in Africa, they were the ones who had the machine guns, the repeating rifles, the, the mm -hmm. cannon and so forth. And the Africans and Asians had none of this stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that has always been curious to me, and I, I hope you can answer this question. I, it's not, there's not much of it in the book, but it does get mentioned that uh, all of the powers, and particularly the Germans, had sent observers to uh, the American Civil War, which was not exactly fought like World War I, but, you know, uh, it's pretty darn close. There were elements of it because they had the first primitive machine guns, the Gatling guns. There was a time of trench warfare, the siege of, of, of Richmond and Petersburg. Uh, but, you know, observing somebody else's war and really absorbing those lessons for your own war are two completely different things. They'd also observed the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-05, which demonstrated the power of the machine gun uh, among many other, and the uselessness of cavalry among many other things. But, you know, these were people who had f their whole careers were founded on being in the cavalry. The idea of having to give up those those glorious horses, was just unthinkable. I think an analogy today, incidentally, is that air forces all over the world are controlled by uh, generals who were once fighter pilots. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and one has to question, uh, you know, is a fighter plane a useful weapon anymore in the age of a drone? Yeah. When a drone can, you know, stay up there for 24 hours, which a fighter pilot can't, it burns less fuel, it can, you know see everything, it can shoot off weapons and so on. Do you still need fighter planes? Mm -hmm. I rather doubt it. But mm -hmm. the idea, tell that to an Air Force officer and be unthinkable because mm -hmm. this is the way they all made their careers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I was thinking of exactly the same thing. My, actually, my uncle made his career that way <laughs> in <laughs> Vietnam. Uh, so, and I'm sure if he were here today, he's dead, but he would say, yeah, F-22, we need a lot of them. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> at $80 million a piece. So yeah. uh, uh, they are fun to look at, though, I have to say that. Yes. The, uh, they are really fun to look at. Um, so let's talk about his, uh, John French's, this, uh, again, late Victorian kind of m militarist, I guess I would call him. And, I, and again, I want to say, I don't, I'm not saying militarist in the 
evaluate his sense. I mean, because he truly believed, as you point out, that that what he believed, and that is that you know that that war was a proper military instrument and that it, it could be used to the good, was really a true thing. He wasn't, you know, he was not embarrassed about these beliefs in any way. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. He 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 had a, he he slept very well every night the, as a militarist. So let's talk a little bit about Charlotte Despard, his sister. Well, she was somebody who had had uh, at first a rather conventional upbringing, a protected, uh, very Victorian upper-class household. But then in her 20s, she began to see something of poverty in the London slums. Uh, She was widowed and much to the uh, bewilderment of friends and family actually moved into the London slum where she'd been working, uh, Battersea. And had she'd set up some uh, social clubs and after-school programs and programs for nursing mothers and this kind of social betterment uh, thing. But she rapidly traveled farther and farther left in her politics. She became friends with uh, Karl Marx's daughter, Eleanor. Uh, the two of them were delegates at one point to the Second International, you know, the big uh, Marxist-oriented association of uh, labor unions and, and socialist parties. And... Uh, No cause was too radical for her. Uh, She immediately embraced women's suffrage, saying, you know, this is the revolutionary movement I've been waiting for. A strong backer of independence for Ireland, independence for India. I think she was rather naive in her radicalism. She immediately gravitated to the most radical position or what appeared to be the most radical position, whatever the the, uh, issue was on the table. And like all too many people on the left in the 1920s and 30s, she became an uncritical admirer of the Soviet Union. Uh, After the Irish Civil War, uh, she remained a backer of the IRA. Uh, But nonetheless, I think in the First World War, uh, she in the end end was much more sensible than those men who marched off to be shot under her brother. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And she is part of a a movement, as you point out, that had been gestating in, uh, well, even before the Victorian era in England, and that is what we might, we, we would think of it today as a progressive movement, although some of the things that they believed obviously were not terribly progressive. A lot of them were eugenicists, for example, but yep. um, but maybe you could talk a little bit about that because the Park or, or the Pankhursts were also part of this. Well, I think prior to 1914, there was still a certain Victorian optimism in the air. Uh, a lot of these people felt that they were the political heirs of the anti-slavery movement. Uh, and slavery in the British Empire came to an end much sooner than it did here in the United States, came to an end in the late 1830s. And it came to an end in part because there was a very vigorous, active movement that had pushed for it. And I think a lot of them felt, well, you know, if we could have a movement to uh, – uh, push slavery out of existence, why not a movement for women's rights, a movement to end poverty, a movement to end war. Uh, And up until 1914, I think there was an optimism in the air that all of these things could be achieved. And they shared a lot of these goals with people in parties of the left in other European countries. There were something like 10 to 15 million socialist voters in Europe uh, on the eve of the war, These parties used to gather for conferences every two years and everybody would talk about how we will never make war on each other. And that happened right up to the last minute, about a week before the war began. In Brussels, there was an emergency meeting of the leaders of Europe's left-wing parties and uh, Jean Jaurès, who was leader of the socialists in France, uh, 
at a big rally afterwards, there were thousands of people there, put his arm around the leader of the German socialists and said, we will never make war on each other. And because of that, Joris, uh, several days later, was assassinated in Paris by mm-hmm. a right-wing nationalist. Mm-hmm. Three days later, the war began, and the socialists, for the most part, ended up uh, enlisting and going off to battle like everybody else, although some of them didn't, and it's those who didn't that are among the people who really interest me in this book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that uh, I think is really fascinating uh, about the book is the way in which uh, many people seem to think that a war um, between Britain and Germany in this case was just a foregone conclusion that it was not an option not to fight this war. Now, I, the reason I find this interesting is I think it points out a difference between us and them. I mean, you know, for example, people will talk about tension between the United States and China. Nobody mm-hmm. says it is a foregone conclusion that we will fight the Chinese. Right. Yeah. So right. Can, can you talk a little bit about this mentality? Well, I think the mentality partly came out of the um, assumption that wars would be swift and glorious. If you thought that a war with China today would be swift and glorious uh, with a rapid victory for the United States, you know, then you might find you know, tens of millions of people in this country saying, well, war is inevitable with China. Let's have it. Let's get it done with sooner rather than later. Mm-hmm. Awful lot of people in Europe felt this way because, as I mentioned, you know, their previous experience of war had been these colonial battles in, in Africa and Asia where it usually was over quick, quickly. And uh, with the casualties almost entirely on the other side. Mm -hmm. So there were people, uh, Kipling was certainly one of them, who thought that a war with Germany was inevitable. Uh, There was something of a naval arms race between Britain and Germany. Uh, But, you know, we've lived through other times in history when there were arms races, like between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, that didn't erupt into all-out war. And at the same time, there was a huge amount of of cultural exchange, uh, Germans learning English. Uh, There were tens of thousands of Germans who were working in Britain because they could get better wages there than in Germany. Mm -hmm. Um, The majority of the honorary degrees that Oxford granted in 1914 went to Germans. Uh, June 1914, uh, the part of the British fleet went to Germany for a regatta and They had banquets with German officers, and when they turned around and sailed for home, the British admiral cabled his or signaled his German counterpart, friends now and friends forever. Mm -hmm. So it was by no means everybody that thought uh, this was was inevitable. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, one of the things that also was fascinating to me, um, I guess this is sort of the difference between – it it points up one of the differences between professional historians and and people uh, such as yourself who write these terrific – narrative histories, and that is that you say in the book uh, that, and I don't want to to mischaracterize what you say, but you basically say the Germans caused the war. Well, I'm sorry, let me interrupt, because this is now the sort of accepted line among professional historians. 20 years ago, it absolutely was not. This is a real sea change, and actually it's a collection of documents that were discovered, and we found the Germans talking, basically spoiling for it, and talking about and preparing for it and saying, you know, basically being impatient for it to happen, and then forcing, forcing a situation, really contriving. We think of Hitler, you know, contriving situations to invade Poland, contriving situations to invade France. But uh, it turns out that it looks like, according to these documents, that the Germans did the same thing. 
Well, the the person who really ignited that sea change was the German historian Fritz Fischer, who uh-huh. did get into parts of the archives in the 19, yeah. 1960s that nobody had seen before. And I think today, you're right, um, almost all professional historians do put much more blame on Germany and Austria-Hungary, its partner, uh-huh. uh, than they do on the nations of the West. At the same time, I have the feel, and and one can certainly find ample evidence of aggressive intentions by both sides, by by both those countries. Uh, Austria-Hungary, for example, was long hankering to crush Serbia, this independent small nation on its border, because Austria-Hungary had problems with its own ethnic Serbs, and they regarded Serbia as as a threat. And the first actual shots of the war were Austro-Hungarian gunboats on the Danube uh, shelling Serbia. And they had these plans in the works for for months before then. The assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand at Sarajevo gave them the excuse, even though he was assassinated by an Austro-Hungarian citizen. Um, Germany had uh, long uh, been thinking about elements in the German government and German business community had been thinking about a war against Russia. They were very concerned that Russia, was, uh, who was their neighbor, uh, they shared a long border, uh, was so much larger, had mm-hmm. such a larger army, was growing so rapidly. It's a railway network was expanding. There would even been German generals who had in, advocated a, a preventative war against Russia 10 years earlier after the 1905 revolution when Russia seemed weakened. But despite all that, you know, testosterone in the air, so to speak, uh, which is something we know all too well from yeah. our own time. Uh, I don't think the war was inevitable. Yeah. I think it was a curious chain of accidents that that began with the assassination at Sarajevo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Well, yeah, that is not generally what uh, I, I think many professional historians would say now. Uh, but but again, I don't, I don't want to get into the particulars of it. The historiography, I don't know it very well. I only know it from the people that I've interviewed on this show, some of whom have surprised many, me. By many, saying, yeah. yeah, many might say war of some sort was was inevitable, perhaps. But I'm still struck with the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, you know, six weeks before it began, everybody was getting along yeah. so well and the tension was yeah. markedly less than it had been at the time of the two Moroccan crises in previous years, for instance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, yeah. So uh, one of the things you point out that it didn't exactly happen overnight. I mean, the Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated and then quite a bit of time went by. That's right. <laughs> uh, he was assassinated and he was assassinated by a, a, an ethnic Serb nationalist, but this guy was an Austro-Hungarian uh, citizen. And there's no evidence that the Serbian cabinet knew about the assassination plot, uh, although uh, Prinkip, the guy who assassinated him, uh, uh, had help from a sort of shadowy net- network of mm-hmm. Serbian nationalists on both sides of the border. But – for the Austro-Hungarian government, this was the perfect excuse to make war on Serbia. And they had these plans in action. Uh, they, they, they put these plans in action. But this was an enormously uh, clunky and inept regime. They had forgotten until they started to move on this that they'd given a large number of soldiers leave to go home and help with the summer harvest. <laughs> they couldn't recall them all because that – tipped their hand that they were about to launch this invasion, so they dithered around for uh, some weeks. Meanwhile, Kaiser Wilhelm in Germany, 
who was a, a big drum beater for war, kept saying, you know, go to war now, go to war now, go to war now. He couldn't stand the way the Austro-Hungarians kept dithering. And then finally, as they did make their intentions clear, this gave Russia a chance to get alarmed and the Serbs a chance, Serbia a chance to appeal to Russia, their Slavic brethren, their Eastern Orthodox brethren. Uh, Russia was very eager to avenge the humiliation it had suffered in being defeated in the Russo-Japanese War 10 years earlier and to show that it could uh, swagger around Europe as best as well as anybody else. And then, of course, once each side started – once one side started mobilizing, then the other side started mobilizing because in those days – the standing armies were not huge, but each side, every one of these major countries could mobilize a huge number of reservists and triple or quadruple the start of the, the size of its standing army. Uh, but that took several weeks. Mm -hmm. So if one side started mobilizing, then you had to mobilize too. And then there were all sorts of half mobilizations and so mm -hmm. forth as well. In addition, there, a tremendous advantage went to the side which attacked first, mm -hmm. which turned out to be Germany, Austria, Hungary, because that meant the battle would take place on the other side's territory. Mm -hmm. And indeed, that's just what happened, where uh, Germany and Austria, Hungary fought uh, almost the entire war on the other side's territory. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now, once the war begins, we come to come to something that is really quite striking. And, and even when I was an undergraduate, um, being the socialist that I was. Back, back when I went to college, undergraduates were socialists. They're not anymore. <laughs> so I can tell you that definitively. But anyway. You, you must be of my generation. Yeah, I, yeah they're not socialists anymore. They just aren't. So, but I was. And, and one of the things I remember reading about was this, uh, this debate about um, um, war credits in the uh, German parliament and the SPD and Liebknecht and all that business and how the, the left, the socialist parties, really um, – they failed to live up to uh, what they said they were going to do. Is that a fair characterization? Explain a little bit of what happened. I think it is. The Socialist Party in Germany, the Social Democrats, were actually the um, uh, largest party in the, in the German parliament. Uh, and they had, uh, I think, 100 and, 116 seats, something like that, in the German parliament. And the key vote was whether or not they would support the Kaiser's demand for war credits, which are essentially bonds to finance, uh, finance the military in the war. And uh, all but a handful, a dozen or so, uh, of the Social Democratic deputies in parliament uh, voted to finance these things. And then the others went along with that vote because there was a party discipline rule that you had to go with what the majority of the caucus decided. But that was really the key decision when Europe's largest socialist party showed that it too would fall under the sway of this tremendous amount of, of uh, uh, tribal feeling mm -hmm. is the best way I can describe it. It was in the air on both sides. The Kaiser in a speech at that time said, uh, I no longer know any parties. I only know Germans. Mm -hmm. And the head of the French uh, Chamber of Deputies said exactly the same thing on almost the same words. Mm -hmm. uh, the, I think what, what was of such crushing disappointment to the anti-war socialists in all of these countries was that at this crucial moment, people showed themselves much more swayed by tribalism, by nationalism, than they were by the socialist ideal that so many people had, had 
fought for for so many years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, as you point out, there's a, a great uh, there's a great war fever. People are very eager to go. I mean, people are, uh, you know, as you point out, as you said, it was your gr- grandfather, is that right? Or, or was it your father? Who, yeah, people were. Um, my, my father. Father, yeah. people who were, you know, who got de- what we would call deferments. And, you know, in our day and age, like I got a deferment is a good thing. Um, we're fighting against them to get in. They were. There is this feeling that just uh, sweeps up at times like this in all countries. And, and it did so in a, in a very uh, marked, dramatic uh, an ultimately tragic way in 1914. Uh, interestingly, the governments on both sides uh, didn't quite plan for it. Uh, the French government, for example, had a, uh, a special list of radicals and subversives who were to be arrested on the outbreak of war because it would, it, the expectation was that all of them would refuse to fight and would sow discontent in the army and so forth. And the French government decided to hold off on this mm-hmm. in 1914. And indeed, uh, something like 95% of the people on this list uh, actually did show up when they were called by their military units and did fight. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that is, it's, it's really quite a remarkable thing. I, I, it, it's so contrary to our experience that well, you know, again, we'll talk a little bit. I want to t- save some time at the end to talk about whether it really is contra- it really is different from our experience. But yeah. uh, one of the – I think a good way to talk about this story of the real strong desire to participate in the war uh, is the story that you tell throughout the book of uh, Rudyard Kipling and his son, right? Son John, is that his name? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a very poignant, uh, sad oh, story. <laughs> Kipling, <laughs> uh, you know, Kipling was a curious man because I think he was a very great writer. I think he entered the mind of children uh, as well or better as uh, any writer ever in our language. Uh, but at the same time, he was a tremendous drumbeater for all things military, for every war that Britain ever fought, and indeed for many that the United States fought. His famous uh, poem about taking up the white man's burden referred to what he thought the United States ought to do in making war on the Philippines. Um, in the late 1890s. Well, he'd always encouraged uh, a love of all things military and his young son, John. And there's a haunting picture of John at the age of about three holding a, a rifle that's even taller than he is. John Kipling set his heart on a military career, was bitterly disappointed that he first failed the, the Navy medical exam and then the Army medical exam. He'd inherited his father's nearsightedness. Uh, you know, in all the pictures you see of Rudyard Kipling, he has these very thick glasses. Finally, the senior Kipling pulled strings, went to a field marshal the family knew, got John a, a commission in the elite regiment, the I- Irish Guards. And in 1915, the Battle of Luce, John Kipling went into action and was never seen again. Mm-hmm. And his parents were absolutely devastated. His father even got the Royal Flying Corps, the predecessor of the Royal Air Force, to fly over German lines and drop leaflets saying anybody who knew the whereabouts of John Kipling or his body should get in touch. Uh, He was just heartbroken. But he didn't let up on his uh, passionate drum beating for the war. Mm -hmm. And I just find that very interesting because he and his wife did spend a lot of emotional energy. They were obviously very, very, very saddened by the death of their son in a cause that they felt was right. And I just find that I, I, contradictory isn't the right word for it, but, you know, they don't draw the conclusions that we would draw. I mean, it's often the case today, you know, 
case of the Russian war in Afghanistan, there were a lot of mothers that fought against it. Because, you know, yep. sons, right? yep. This was not the reaction that people had then. No, this was not the reaction. And I think it was because there was all this patriotic fervor in the air. And every institution in the country, the government, the newspapers, private organizations, the churches, some of the most appalling pro-war rhetoric coming out of the churches, was trying to nourish the idea that this was a, a, a noble war, uh, it had to be fought. And I think there is a powerful incentive. Everyone feels, you know, if you have lost your son, your husband, your brother uh, in a war, you want to feel that he didn't die in vain, mm -hmm. that he died for something worthy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And also, I think one of the most fascinating things, there's a, there's a couple of Paragraphs in the book that I find found very moving and very surprising about, um, and I did not know this. I, I know a little Kipling. I can even recite some of his poems. Uh, that he wrote a history of uh, the Irish Guard, right? That's right. I mean, that was, was sort his... of an act of literary atonement, wasn't it? It was. Well, not really atonement. He saw it as his way of honoring what his son uh, – fought for. He wrote a two-volume yeah. regimental history of the Irish guards, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages, sort of a methodical reciting of every battle. And his son is mentioned just in one sentence, you know, in this engagement, Lieutenant Kipling and Lieutenant somebody else lost their lives, and that's it. Mm -hmm. But I think he saw this as a way of doing homage to his son and, and what he thought his son had fought for. Yeah. I mean, you have a wonderful line in the book. If anyone's read these regimental histories, uh, they, they exist in the American. I think every army writes them, but they, you say something about it. The book reads like those books that are written only to be read by the people mentioned in them. That's right. <laughs> that's really what these are. Is they, they are, uh, yeah. You, that's the you know, it's it's not uh, something anybody would really want to read. So, um, so then the, the war begins, and of course it it, it quickly uh, becomes the, the slaughter that that most people um, have come to associate with uh, World War One trench warfare and all that. But um, instead of rehearsing that, I want to talk a little bit about what uh, what did the uh, what did the English do with all these conscientious objectors? Well. Britain had a curiously uh, wide conscientious objector law. Uh, and the reason for this was that uh, they had no conscription for the first year and a half of the war. So many people rushed to enlist that they were able to, you know, fill the trenches in France with, with volunteers. But by the spring of 1916, the army was running out of men and they decided to uh, institute conscription just the way all the other European countries had it. But there were many people in England, uh, even conservative pro-war members of parliament, who felt uneasy about this because they had never had army conscription before. Uh, they saw that as an American thing and uh, not something that uh, you know comported with British traditions. Mm -hmm. And to satisfy them, they put through a law that was quite broad. It allowed you to claim conscientious objector status for either religious reasons or reasons of political conviction. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is that a majority of people claiming conscientious objector status, they didn't all get it, but a majority of people claiming that status did so for religious reasons, mostly Quakers, and a majority did so for political reasons, mostly saying they were international socialists. So there was a big overlap there. And in the prisons, where a lot of these guys ended up, they sang both labor and socialist songs and Christian hymns. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, 
So, some of these people uh, are, are famous. Bertrand Russell, for example. Can you talk a little bit right. about what? what um, right. What, somebody you know. I, I came to admire a great deal in the course of writing this book. He was the country's best-known philosopher. Uh, pioneer in mathematical philosophy, very abstruse, high-level stuff, far beyond my comprehension. Uh, at the same time, he wrote beautifully for the general public on a wide variety of other subjects. And from the moment the war began, he was deeply convinced there is no great principle at stake here. This is not worth millions of lives. And I'm going to keep on saying this and speaking out about it. And indeed, he did. What I think I admire most about him is his intellectual honesty about the conflict in his feelings because he wrote very beautifully about how hard it was to stick with this conviction when at one point he said, I desired the defeat of Germany as much as any retired colonel mm -hmm. and love of England is very nearly the strongest emotion I possess. But he was able to set those feelings aside and say, it's not worth the lives of all these young men. Mm -hmm. And indeed, he did more than just writing and speaking against the war. Um, he became an active supporter of something called the No Conscription Fellowship, which was the principal peace group that supported conscientious objectors. And its leaders repeatedly kept getting arrested and sent off to jail as conscientious objectors who were refusing alternative service. Russell finally took over as acting chairman of the group and spent several hours in its office each day dealing with routine correspondence and that kind of thing. You know, and this is somebody who should be at home writing philosophy. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, in 1918, uh, he was sent to jail for six months uh, for his anti-war opinions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to preserve just a, a little bit of the hour to talk to you more broadly about a question that occurred to me while reading the book, and uh, that is this. Um, it is very clear to me that uh, the people who felt that war was wrong categorically or this war was wrong categorically were in the very small minority, and that almost everyone in this book, and most everyone, I think, in Europe at the time, and perhaps the United States, felt that in some sense, war was a cleansing and good thing, that it was something that you, especially as a young man, should experience, that it was part of the repertoire of national actions that all great powers could undertake. We don't feel that way today. I think we don't. Um, with some possible exceptions. Again, I think the people that do feel that are in the minority. And I guess I just wanted you to speculate a little bit about when that sea change, if it in fact is a sea change, happened. Well, I think that uh, the First World War was a, was a key dividing point in that sea change. Uh, uh, up to 1914, you're right, you can find a tremendous number of references to war as sport and people talking about, yeah, it will stiffen the nation's spine to fight in a mm. war. Uh, it will be a cleansing thing. And there are parallel quotes from people on both sides, you know, people who should know better, like Thomas Mann, <laughs> a great German writer, uh, all sorts of distinguished writers in, in, in England, you know, saying the same thing. Uh, I think that in, a, in many analogies to war as sport, you know, the way you would talk today about, you know, it's good to take part in mm -hmm. team sports, you know, it, it builds competitive spirit or whatnot. Uh, I think <clears throat> that feeling really did change by the time of the Second World War 
where I don't think you saw, you know, people on the Allied side talking about it'll stiffen the national spine to go and fight. I think they felt they fought because they had to, because Germany was wanting to overrun Europe and attacking them. And I think it doesn't exist today, but I also think that we still have other ways of mindlessly cheering on the wars of today, Mm -hmm. which become all the more easy to do because there is no draft. It's a, uh, it's a small, uh, and uh, all volunteer army that's doing the fighting. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they are nominally all volunteers. Some of them have in effect been economically drafted because there were no opportunities for them. You know, for many of the enlisted men, particularly in the army, there were no opportunities in civilian life in the United States, mm-hmm. and that's why they're in uniform. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting you say that. I teach a lot of students who are – I teach a military history class here at the University of Iowa, and hmm. I often have a lot of ROTC um, uh, uh, officers in my classes. And I also have people that have been deployed and are back from Afghanistan and Iraq, and I can tell you that uh, that um, you know that, that patriotic spirit is still uh, – it is still alive, but in a much more guarded way. The, I, I can tell you that my uh, my estimation of what the army does has risen tremendously um, uh, through my association with these people because they are really they they they, they really do believe that war is not a terribly good thing and, and that they don't yeah. want to do it. Uh, and but they will do it, and they're very good at it. But they do not want to yeah. do it. But anyway, I, yeah. Well, I, I have myself sort of the same feelings about. People, I, I know a lot of people in the Army. I was in the Army myself yeah. because it was a draft when I graduated from college. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I've lectured at West Point and so on. And there, there are many decent people uh, in this institution. But I think that and, – and decent and skilled and well-intentioned people. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a very different question from are the – principal wars that the U.S. has engaged in in recent years, uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, fully justified. Yes. No, I, I only meant to say that the attitude in the military itself has changed. Yeah. These people yeah. are not spoiling for any fights. I, I, mean, th- it, I, th- I think I would agree with that. It, it yeah. is very true, of course, that if they get into it, they want to win. Um, but yep. they are not looking to get into it. Um, yep. In fact, I think the case of Colin Powell is a very interesting one because he yes. profoundly did not want to get into it. And yes. he'd been in it. And, yes. and you just don't find people like that uh, on yep. the general staffs of the German or the British Army. British didn't have general staff, but uh, I think dur- during World War One. Um, That's true. I, got, I have my own pet theory about this: is that uh, really the sea change wasn't World War One, and, 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 and it was, uh, it was in fact, um, it wasn't even World War Two, but it was in fact uh, the 1950s when it became very clear uh, with the advent of mass nuclear weapons that we would just completely obliterate each other. And then people in democracy just said, look, we can't do this. We can spy fall war, small wars are fine, but no more big wars. It's mm-hmm. over. It's just too costly. There's, I mean, they see it, you know. Um, and in that weird way, you know, that, that, uh, that we, we owe late 20th century, I guess in 21st century, peace to the atom bomb. And odd mm-hmm. and very strange. I don't know. People are probably going to write me and say I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think there's some truth to that. The U.S. And, and the Soviet Union didn't go to war. Yeah. No, I mean, they, they, now everybody just understands that it's just would, that would be it. It yeah. would be all over. You know, it's one thing to imagine a million artillery shells being shot in you know, the period of three or four days. Uh, it's kind of distant from you. But watching your city leveled as, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were, that, that, that's yeah. very tangible. Like, there yeah. it is. Your city's gone. That's it. It's yeah. over. So uh, that, that, I think, um, 
that put – and, you know, one of the great examples of this is uh, someone we think of as kind of an arch hawk today, and that is Ronald Reagan, who, uh, if I am if not incorrect, said uh, that he would not fire nuclear weapons under any circumstances. He said – and, you know, he said this uh, – he said this privately, but – he said, I will, you know, if they attack us, I will not fire these things. They are immoral weapons. I will not do it. Mm. You know, and that, when I read that, I was really, un, I thought it was unbelievable. But mm. it's tr- apparently it's true. He hated them. He hated nuclear weapons. He thought they were immoral in and of themselves. And he would not use them, he said. Well, uh, if he said that, I would agree with him. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, again, right. But it's a very strange thing to come from a person who is thought of today as an yes. arch hawk. Yeah, I yeah. guess that's what I'm saying. So, yeah. Anyway, Adam, we've taken up a ton of your time, and this has been a fascinating conversation. I'd like to close the interview, if we could, um, by asking you our traditional final question on New Books in History, and that is, what, what are you working on now? What is your next project? You know, I, at the moment, don't have a next project that I'm certain of. Uh, it takes me a long time to figure out the subject for what I'm going to do a book on. Once I have the subject and a group of characters, then I can go for it with no mm-hmm. problems. Mm-hmm. But I have not yet found that. I'm looking around. Uh, I'm prospecting for subjects. But I, I, and whatever it is, it'll probably be a different country in a different century <laughs> than this one. That's my usual pattern. But I haven't got one yet. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. That's great. You see, one of the things about academic historians is we get stuck. We don't get to do a different country in a different yeah. century. That's really, it's a tough thing for well, us. It, it's no fun for me unless I do because then there isn't something yeah. for me to learn. Right. Well, you know? I agree with that more than I can tell you. And that's part of the reason <laughs> I do this show. I mean I like to tell people that it's, a, it's an excuse for me to read books that, uh, according to my um, brief here at the University of Iowa, I'm not supposed to be reading. <laughs> so anyway, we've been talking to Adam Hochschild today about his book, To End All Wars, A Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914 to 1918. It's a terrific book, and I think people should go out and buy it and read it. Uh, I read it and think it's terrific, and I really enjoyed talking to Adam today. Adam, thanks. Thank you, Marshall. Okay, take care. You've been listening to an interview with Adam Hochschild about his new book, To End All Wars, A Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914 to 1918. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. 